Our scripture lesson this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 13. And if you're following along in your pew Bible, you may find that on page 164 in the New Testament section. Let us listen now to Paul's words to the first church in Corinth. If I speak in the tongues of humans and of angels, but do not have love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I hand over my body so that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we will see face to face. For for now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love remain, and these three, the greatest of these, is love. When I started middle school, my family made the decision to move up from the then small town of Stafford County, Virginia, so that my father would have an easier commute to Washington, D.C. The Falls Church area was much different than the country roads and cornfields I was used to in Stafford. When I enrolled in the seventh grade at Luther Jackson Middle School, nestled in the heart of Falls Church, which housed nearly 900 students, between two grades. To say I experienced a bit of a culture shock is an understatement. The population represented 82 nationalities, and 90% of the entire student body was in the ESL, or English as Second Language, program. I distinctly remember feeling other in that environment, very different from the middle-class white privilege I'd experienced most of my life up to that point. I remember a moment in those early months of seventh grade which taught me a valuable lesson about how I knew I was different from my peers. I was eager and nervous to fit into the student body. One day in our PE class, I gathered with a small group of chattering girls. One of them was of Asian descent, but at the time, I was unaware of the diversity and complexities of being identified as Asian. 
I don't remember the specifics, but in conversation, I called one of the girls Oriental in the group. There was a hush, and I was unsure what had transpired in that moment that hung between us. And she responded, honey, I am not food and I am not a rug. I am Vietnamese. My heart sank, and some of the girls chuckled, their hands flying to their mouths to keep their laughter hushed. I turned beet red and tried to recover, but it was too late. My ignorance was visible and glared like the row of metal braces on my teeth. At the moment, I was embarrassed to be called out on the spot about my racist comment. But in reflection, it was a most valuable lesson for me. And I lean on that experience to think critically about being a Jesus follower. I don't doubt you might have had a similar experience. You may have overstepped in conversation and felt embarrassed later on. You may have worked to fit hard into a group of people, but realize you might just have nothing in common. You may have been called out for being different or could not reconcile a friend's point of view with your own. I believe the, the first century Corinthian church experienced much of the same as they wrestled with ideas about living life as a new creation that this Jesus talked about. What did that look like? What did it mean to reconcile this former self with a new self in Christ? The Corinthian church was a group of Gentile folks within the city of Corinth, which was at the center of commerce and trade. Situated on the Aegean Sea in today's modern-day Turkey, it was buzzing with people from all over and had heavy Greek influences. Jews and Gentiles alike began to join the ranks of Jesus' followers after Paul's first mission to Corinth around the year 50 of the Common Era. And some 10 years later, after two other visits to Corinth, which we read about in the Acts of the Apostles, Paul writes a response to this budding group in his letter to the church in Corinth, similar to what we read in other epistle letters of the New Testament. The membership in this fledgling congregation included Jews and Gentiles from several ethnicities and nationalities who had shown their dedication to mutual love and devout faith, as indicated in Paul's first two chapters of this letter. Rather than gathering as one congregation, maybe weekly, the group split off into smaller numbers and would gather in house church to worship and exchange ideas about faith. This dialogue prompted debate among members about matters of faith, which was impacted by their diverse ethnic, cultural, and religious histories. Remember that the Gentiles in these groups were non-Jews who were not raised in the faith of the Israelite people. Rather, they were converts, so they fumbled around with this word given to them by Paul and the other apostles who witnessed the ministry of Christ before his death. They earnestly de desired to do as Christ called, including how to assimilate new ways of living. Much like the other epistle letters, this letter to the Corinthians is Paul's response to disputed matters. While we don't have the original work, from the church to Paul, we can deduce much of their questions based on his answers in the letter we read. On a macro level, he calls the group to embrace two major themes, unity and love. And he had good reason to address these concerns because this group was at the point of internal implosion. They couldn't agree on things. 
They fought about theological rightness. And we hear this echo in Paul's response to them regarding love. You can have the best choir, but you'll sound like a crashing cymbal way out of place without love. You may have the most eloquent folks running your session, but if their conversation isn't based in love, you have nothing more than a bunch of talking heads. You may think your belief and faith is so magnanimous, but without it being rooted in love, you aren't doing much more than sending up empty prayers. He then directs what love is and should be as an action to them. And it seems likely that everything Paul describes about love is the opposite of what they were actually doing in community and in relationship with one another. You've likely heard this scripture used in a wedding, and maybe even your own wedding. And yes, these words can be used to describe love between two people. But if we as a Christian community silo off 1 Corinthians 13 to weddings alone, we will be missing a valuable resource to challenge and affirm Christian love and unity. In chapter 12, we hear about the necessity of every part of the body of Christ, not the four walls which make up a place in which to worship, but the living, moving, breathing being of Christ incarnate in each of its members. We hear about the necessity of each body part, about prophets and teachers, those with healing gifts and those who speak in tongues. Each one of these parts was important to the community, and Paul reminds them that with each role, Christ's body is unified and left without dissension or dispute. Love is vital in a community. Love is vital to the body of Christ and all of its members. Love does not simply motivate the community towards evangelism. Rather, love defines evangelism. What Paul doesn't share is how very hard this can be as a human being. We don't always get this stuff right, and it takes a lot of effort to really love everyone. I can't help but feel like a first-century Corinthian, and maybe you do too. I can't help but feel like at times I'm grasping at straws to seek significance and truth in our modern day. We are human beings wired to discriminate, that is, to distinctly favor one thing over another. We discriminate in our daily choices, but we also discriminate on larger, significant issues. On a lesser level, we discriminate between a tie or a button-down and jacket on our Zoom work meetings. We decide if we're going to have that healthy banana and yogurt or the tempting Egg McMuffin on our way. We also make financial choices, which influence our family. We discriminate about neighborhoods and where to raise our children. We favor one college over another for education. And these choices we make divide us in many ways, which can have significant repercussions on our understanding of community. Like the Corinthian church, we also discriminate or distinctly favor one thing over another regarding matters of faith. Is it contemporary worship or traditional? Do we sing from the blue hymnal or do we sing from the glory to God hymnal? Do we sprinkle our children at the baptismal font or wait to dunk them in the river in a few years? Are we an open and affirming congregation to the LGBTQ plus community or those who may not be able to dress up as nicely as we do when we come to church? Do we secretly hope some groups of people will find a different place to worship? 
We wrestle with theological rightness in our modern church as the Corinthians wrestled with one another in the common era. So Paul directs the Corinthians and us modern Christians to unity and love. Paul calls this community towards respect and love as adults seeking to follow Jesus' example in their own relationships and in the world around them. He challenges them to think and respond to the world as mature, faithful believers, not like the seventh graders they once were, ignorant in their bias and lofty in their speech towards others different than them. Paul reminds them that love's power is mighty enough to lift them above their insignificant discrimination as well as those larger significant ones. Love is an action word that ought to inform their existence as the church and not some flowery word just used in a marriage vow. I recently heard a sermon about God's incredible love for us all and our necessary response to love one another. The challenge was to consider turning away from indifference and turning towards love and unity in Christ. Turning away from indifference and turning towards love and unity in Christ. So I want you to do something right now. Turn to your neighbor in your pew, or if you're joining us online, I want you to imagine the neighbor that lives in the home or the apartment next to yours. Go ahead. Turn and look at your neighbor. Look who's next to you. Draw up your image in their mind, and while you do so, I want you to think about these questions. What would it take for you to love that neighbor to your left and to your right? Can you see the image of God in that person? Is the call to follow Christ worth it to love that person despite the ways that you are different? Can you see the beauty of uniting with that person to serve and love the Lord? I am challenged by the great maturity of spirit required to live love to myself and to others on a daily basis. I am challenged to love when I don't feel like loving. I am challenged to love in order that I might see God in another. I am challenged to love when I think my way is best, my theology is best, my perspective is best. But then I remember the beauty of the faces of that diverse middle school in Falls Church, Virginia. I remember the great depth of culture and perspective and value systems which made me tremble with awe and wonder as a child. And I know the church well enough to see the beauty of our similarities and our differences. We can find hope in our mutual love for Christ and to answer the call to serve. We may not always get it right, nor do it the best we might possibly muster. In fact, Professor Brene Brown, a well-known researcher of courage, vulnerability, and leadership, encourages herself with this mantra when she faces a difficult moment required of her. I am here to get it right, not to be right. I am here to get it right, not to be right. I am here to get it right, not to be right. In this endeavor to grow toward love, toward reconciliation with one another, toward a maturity of faith, we may not always agree, nor will we always seek the same vehicle to do the work of Christ in the world. But we affirm a God whose love is not measured with a measuring stick. 
We love because we were first loved. And we believe God so loved the world that God gave God's only Son that whomever believed, not who looked like me or talked like me or thought like me, whoever believes shall have everlasting life. When we aim to unite and love for these purposes, when we aim to get it right, not to be right, we too might live to bear all things with one another, believe all things with one another, hope all things with one another, and endure all things with one another. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all of God's people said, Amen.